Good morning. It's very nice to be back with you. I appreciate the invitation. Based on David's introduction, you may think I'm here to talk about incredibly profound matters of the soul, but I want to begin talking about ramen noodles. I spent about a year in college living on ramen noodles. Many of you have probably had that experience. And I have to confess that I have three young children, and there are certain days where we go down to our basement and find a random pack of ramen noodles because we're just too rushed, too busy to give them anything more nutritious or time-consuming. So it's sort of a a go-to last resort for our household when we need something to eat, and the kids actually like it. But what I didn't realize is that over 100 million people eat ramen noodles every day. It's one of the most commonly eaten foods in the world. And we have one man to thank for that. His name was Momofuku Ando. He lived in Japan until a few years ago, and he died at the age of 96, so apparently ramen is not as bad for you as you may have thought. (laughs) I want to read for you a a brief excerpt of a tribute that was written to Mr. Ando in the New York Times by Lawrence Downs. I don't have time to read the whole article. It's so brilliantly written, I wish I could, but let me give you a little bit of it. There are other versions of fast noodles. There is spaghetti in a can, which is sweet and gloppy and the first cousin of dog food. There's macaroni and cheese in a box. It's a convenience product requiring several inconvenient steps. You have to boil the macaroni, stir it to prevent it from sticking. You must separate water from noodles using a specialized tool. And to complete the dish, which is such an insult, you have to measure and add the fatty deliciousness yourself in the form of butter and milk that Kraft assumes you already have on hand. All that effort plus the cleanup is hardly worth it. Ramen noodles, by contrast, are a dish of effortless purity. Like the egg or tea, they attain a certain state of grace through a marriage with nothing but hot water. After three minutes in a yellow broth, the noodles soften. The pebbly peas and carrot chips practically turn lifelike. A near weightless assemblage of plastic and foam is transformed into something any college student will recognize as food. And for as little as 20 cents a serving... Ramen noodles have earned Mr. Ando an eternal place in the pantheon of human progress. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. Give him ramen noodles, and you don't have to teach him anything. (laughs) For me, ramen noodles sort of captures so many of our cherished cultural values. They're delicious, they're cheap, and above all, they are fast. There are other things we can eat, certainly other things I can provide for my children that are going to taste better, that are certainly going to be more nutritious for them. But when you're in a crunch, 20 cents on some ramen noodles, the kids are happy, I'm happy, everyone's happy, it's a great thing. Think about how much of our culture values instant gratification, the quick, fast, easy solution. All the products that are marketed to us as instant, forget just ramen noodles, instant mashed potatoes, instant rice, instant messenger, instant on-demand movies and cable, television. We expect everything to happen right now, and we have so little perspective on history that we forget how unique a time we live in because we get grumpy when the things that other people used to wait a long time for we don't have immediately. I travel a lot. I fly all over the country, and because of that, I get delayed a lot in airports. And it's amazing to sit back and watch how angry people get at the shortest delay of a flight, 30 minutes, 
30 extra minutes to sit at Starbucks in a terminal and people are fuming, not realizing that it wasn't that long ago where traveling across this country was such a horrible ordeal that people literally ate each other on the way because it took so long and they were trapped in mountain passes with snow. And here we are grumbling about a 30-minute delay. We expect instant gratification. We demand it. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we have a significant problem. Because it turns out that our God does not value instant gratification nearly as much as we do. So, for example, the Apostle Peter says that with our God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. That doesn't bode well for those of us who want him to act really quickly on our behalf to do things instantly. Our God seems to value protracted waiting and perseverance. He actually specializes in delaying gratification. What I want to do this morning is look at a passage from Luke chapter 4 that I think helps us wrestle more wisely with the delay of our gratification. I already mentioned Luke chapter 4. It's the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. I think we may have the passage up on the screen also. But in this story... I want us to see and learn what it is that Jesus learned in the wilderness. And that is to truly follow after the way of God. There are no shortcuts. And instant gratification will actually retard our development, the nurturing of our souls, our communion with God. That in this case, in the case of our souls, it's actually better to delay gratification than to fulfill it. Let me read the text for us, beginning in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem. And had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The story begins with Jesus being led out into the wilderness for 40 days in the power of the Spirit. It's kind of an interesting way to begin one's public ministry all alone in the wilderness. But there's an important bit of context here that I want to help you see. A number of the gospel writers, particularly Matthew to a slightly lesser degree Luke, which we just read, construct a parallel in the early chapters of their account of Jesus. And the parallel is between Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and the ancient story of Israel itself. Let me give you an example. You know, after Jesus was born, he and his family had to flee Israel for Egypt 
because Herod wanted to kill the infant Jesus. They became refugees. Back in Genesis, God's people Israel also fled the promised land because of a famine and became refugees in Egypt. They stayed there for hundreds of years, eventually becoming slaves, and then we read the story of the Exodus where Moses comes and liberates his people from slavery in Egypt, and they pass through the waters of the Red Sea before they go into the wilderness. Similarly, Jesus begins his public ministry by passing through the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, which happened in chapter 3 of Luke's gospel. Immediately after passing through the waters of the Exodus story, the Israelites enter the wilderness and they wander there in the wilderness for 40 years, led by God through the presence of the Spirit of God in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Jesus, immediately after passing through the waters of baptism, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. There's a parallel going on. What the gospel writers appear to be doing is, say to, is saying to the reader that this Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is fulfilling the purposes that God had for Israel, his people. But there's one significant difference. When God's people were in the wilderness for 40 years, they were tested their faith was challenged. And over and over and over again, the Israelites failed. They failed to exhibit faith. They failed to trust God. And as a result, God judged them and allowed an entire generation of Israelites to die in the wilderness before the next generation was allowed to enter the promised land. So the tension, if you were an ancient reader of the Gospels, you would probably pick up on this, is, okay, this Messiah of Israel now who represents God's people is being led into the wilderness for 40 days of testing is he going to fail like God's people did? Or will he withstand the test? That's the question that the reader brings to this text. How is Jesus going to fare as the Messiah of Israel? And the first temptation comes in verse 2, when after fasting for 40 days, the enemy comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. I don't know what you think when you read that, but I think it sounds like a pretty good idea. I mean, he's hungry. Bread's a practical solution to that. There's nothing immoral or ungodly about desiring food. There's nothing evil about making bread. So why not take the devil's advice? Do something useful. Do something practical. Of course, Jesus doesn't. Instead, he quotes the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Now, the full verse that he's quoting is actually from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and it continues this way. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, what's interesting is this quote in Deuteronomy 8 is taken from the story of God's people Israel in the wilderness, trusting God to provide bread for them every day, manna from heaven, enough bread to satisfy all of their physical needs. So here's the tension that seems to be going on. The enemy comes along and says to Jesus, you have this desire, you're hungry, fulfill it, satisfy it, meet the need right now. And in response, Jesus says, yeah, I have this desire for bread, I have this desire for food, but life is more than what I desire. Life is more than just satisfying my physical needs. True life proceeds from the mouth of God. True life is not found in my desires. True life is found in remaining faithful and obedient and in communion 
with the Father. We do not live by bread alone. We do not live merely by satisfying our desires, but by remaining connected to the will of God. Now, that's a relevant and important challenge for us because in our instant gratification culture, one of the things that we've done is we have deified personal desire. One thing that gets communicated to us over and over and over again is that the goal of life is the fulfilling of our personal desires. Now, it hasn't always been this way. Let me give you a little bit of history. About 150 years ago, depending on where exactly you're looking geographically, an interesting phenomenon started to happen. We started to make factories that were capable of manufacturing goods at a pace faster than people could actually use them. And this created a problem. Because in order to keep those factories open, in order to keep the economy humming, you needed people to buy and consume these products at a rate faster than they actually needed them. So a new industry was created to try to keep the engines of industry going and make people consume more than they wanted. And that industry is the modern advertising industry. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, a whole new form of advertising came about which addressed not just what people needed, but trying to get people to want things they didn't yet need. I'll give you an example. In 1901, there was an advertising expert named Emily Fogg Mead. Listen to what she said. We need advertising to ensure the diffusion of desire throughout the entire population. We're no longer concerned with a person's ability to pay, but only with their ability to want. It was during this era, right around the turn of the century, that all kinds of new and creative ways of getting you to want things were created. Even holidays were invented. Mother's Day, Father's Day were invented by a, a law passed by Congress which was lobbied for by store owners, by the first uh, large shopping stores in New York and, and Philadelphia, the owners of these stores went to Washington and said, we need you to pass a law creating holidays that will get more people into our stores. You're welcome, mothers and fathers. It's a completely artificial holiday. De Beers, the, the diamond monopoly, created this belief that the only legitimate way to get engaged anymore is with a diamond solitaire ring, an idea that we all take as gospel truth these days that no one would have heard of 150 years ago. All of these new ways to get you to desire things. Today, according to the New York Times in a survey, every American is exposed to over 3,500 desire-inducing advertisements every day. 3,500. Every one of them, in one way or another, subtly telling you that the meaning of life is the cultivation of desire and the pursuit of satisfying them. We've gone so far as a culture down this road that really the only unforgivable sin in America today is telling somebody that their desire cannot or should not be fulfilled. If you want to understand the political debates we're having, the cultural changes that are going on around the definitions of marriage, human sexuality, it all comes down to this belief that my desires are sacred. And who are you to tell me that I cannot fulfill them? We have deified personal desire. But Jesus comes to us. The Word of God comes to us and says something different. That there's more to life than our desires. There's more to life than pursuing their fulfillment. We do not live because of what we desire. We are not defined by what we desire. A meaningful life is not the one that has all those desires fulfilled, but true life comes from remaining in communion with the one who made us. 
We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is able to resist this temptation of the enemy because he knows that true life is not rooted in our desires. True life is rooted in the one who made us, in God himself. The second temptation is even more interesting. Verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant, love that word, instant, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, this one intrigues me, and here's why. I think most of us, when we read this particular temptation, assume that what Jesus is being tempted with is power. Power and authority over all the nations. I don't think that's actually what's going on here. Here's why. Colossians chapter 1, we read this. For through Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether throne or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those include the nations. They were all things created through him and for him. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, says this, that because of the cross and the resurrection, Jesus Christ has gone through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. Paul in his theology in Philippians chapter 2 puts it this way, that because of Jesus' obedience, his willingness to die on the cross, God the Father has exalted him above all things so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. Here's what I'm getting at. Again and again and again, what we find in Scripture is that all authority and power has been made subject to Christ. Talks about 1 Corinthians 15, all things being made subject to him, Colossians 1, 1 Peter, Philippians, over and over and over again, we read that Jesus created the nations and that they are all made subject to him. We see it in Revelation very clearly because of his faithfulness to the Father dying on the cross and being raised to new life. Here's my point. Jesus knows that it is his destiny that all nations will be made subject to him, that he will have power and authority over all things. So when the enemy comes to him and shows him in an instant all of the glory and splendor of the nations and says, I'll give it to you now, he's not tempting Jesus with power. What he's tempting him with is immediate power. What he's saying to Jesus is, you don't have to long, take this long road to the cross. You don't have to suffer and die. You don't have to be humiliated by your enemies. You don't have to be spit on and mocked and suffer this horrendous death that your father has planned for you. You don't have to do all of the hard work to get the nations. I will give them to you right now. I'm offering a shortcut. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. What the enemy is offering to Jesus is instant gratification. No pain, no suffering, no struggle, no humiliation. You can have it right now. The same thing is revealed in the third temptation. 
he takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down and test God and see if he will protect you. See if he will lift you up. Jesus also knows that a day is coming when he will surrender himself completely to the Father and entrust his destiny to the Father. He will do that on the cross when he gives up his spirit and the Father in his faithfulness will indeed raise him up, lift him up from the grave. But what the devil is saying is do it now. Don't go through the hardship of the cross. Don't go through the pain and the humiliation. Do it right now. Get it over with. Make it quick. Take the shortcut. Prove you are the Son of God. But do it quick and easy. A few years ago, there was a law firm here in Chicago that put up a billboard. Some of you may have seen this if you drove into the city regularly. It got a lot of attention. The billboard simply said, Life is short. Get a divorce. Remember that? Caused a lot of stir in the media. It certainly was effective at getting attention for the law firm. One of the lawyers at the firm who put up the billboard was interviewed in the media about it, and this is what she said. She said the billboard was intended to be thought-provoking and in no way different than any other motivational book that says you should live your best life now. You catch the reference there? She's paraphrasing the title of a very popular best-selling book by a Christian author. Live your best life now. That's what we're told over and over and over again in our culture. Don't put in the hard work. Don't struggle. Don't suffer. Don't strain yourself. You can have it right now. You can have it instantly. You can have it without the work and the effort. And somehow that same message has creeped into the church. We believe that you can experience all the glories and wonders of the Christian life with no struggle whatsoever. That when you come to church, it should be comfortable. That the people that you commune with in church should all be the kind of people that you love being around. You shouldn't have any of the difficulties or struggles of real community. And if you have a Christian family, well, you're not going to have any of the problems or struggles that other families have because it's supposed to be easy street, right? The Christian life is supposed to be easy. You should be able to do forgiveness and love and mercy and generosity and all those things without any struggle whatsoever. Jesus did the struggle on the cross, therefore you don't have to. You can have your best life right now. That is not the road that is set out before us. That is the language of the enemy who says you can take a shortcut. You can get the glory You can get the power. You can get the comfort. You can get the wealth. You can get the great relationship. You can have the wonderful church with no struggle whatsoever. When you hear that message, you are not hearing the Spirit of God. You are hearing the Spirit of this world. A Christian psychiatrist in one of his books said this, Delaying gratification is a process of scheduling the pain and the pleasure of life in such a way as to enhance the pleasure by meeting and experiencing the pain first and getting it over with. It's the only decent way to live. What he's getting at here is what some counselors, therapists, psychologists will use to define adulthood. The definition of an adult is somebody who's able to delay gratification in order to maximize pleasure. 
somebody who can recognize that I will take the hard thing now because I know in the long run it's going to be better for me. A young child can't do that. An infant just screams bloody murder for instant gratification. That's how they're wired. That's for survival. But as we get older, the whole process of adolescence is a process of learning to delay gratification, to say, I will wait. I will work at school and learn something I don't want to learn right now because I know if I do, in the long run, it'll pay off. That's what's required for basic maturity as a human being. That's what's required to develop our bodies, to become athletes, to become gifted musicians, singers. These folks up here had to work for a long time to learn the skills and persevere, sometimes through hard struggle, in order to gain a skill that now probably brings them great joy and certainly does to all of us. We recognize that that's simple wisdom of life. Work hard in school now so you can work less later. Save now so you can enjoy later. Eat healthy now so you can live long later. Exercise now so that your body's healthy later. But somehow the logic of this falls apart when we come into the church. We think somehow our spiritual lives should be exempt from that rule of life, that it should all be easy all the time. Jesus recognizes the foolishness of this logic. You see, what Jesus realizes is that even though the enemy is offering him instant gratification, what the Father is offering to him is infinite gratification. Jesus is willing to endure the pain and struggle and shame of the cross because he knows that on the other side of that is a joy and a satisfaction which is beyond anything the enemy could ever offer him. I can say that because we're told exactly that in Hebrews chapter 2. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says that Jesus endured the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Somehow Jesus was able to see that on the other side of all that humiliation and pain and suffering was a glory that would bring him infinite joy, that he'd be given the name above all names, that all power and authority would be given to him, and that's why he endured the cross. Sometimes we think that this Christian life is all about pain and suffering and struggle. It's not. It's about that in the short term. But in the long term, what's being offered to us is so much more. What the enemy does in temptation is not try to awaken in us more desires than we were rightly created for. What the enemy is really trying to do is get us to settle for a desire less than we were created for. In 1970, there was uh, an experiment done by Walter Meischel, which is now a classic experiment. He took four-year-olds, preschool-age children, and he put them in a room with a table And on the table were two items, a marshmallow and a bell. And he told the four-year-old that he was going to leave the room. And if they rang the bell, he would come back and they could eat the marshmallow. But if they did not ring the bell and waited for him to come back at his leisure, he would give them two marshmallows. And then he left the room, and behind a two-way mirror, he put a video camera to watch these kids struggle with temptation. Some of them broke down immediately. No self-control whatsoever. They rang that bell. They ate the marshmallow. They just couldn't handle it. Some of them went on for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, some even longer. 
Now, that's in itself not particularly interesting, but what is, is he continued to follow these children for the next 30 years to look at how their lives unfolded. And what he found was a direct correlation between the amount of time the children could control themselves and how well they fared in the world. He said that those children who rang the bell quickest, those with the least self-control, were far more likely to become bullies in school, receive poor grades, and have substance abuse problems by the age of 32. Those who waited longer typically received better grades. More of them went on to college. Most had healthy, productive adult lives. In the conclusion of his report, he said... It pays to work toward the future instead of living for instant gratification. When I first read this, I was so tempted to do the same experiment with my children. <laughs> but I didn't want to know the future. I don't think I could have, I don't think I could have, could have taken it. What the enemy offers us is instant gratification. But he offers it at a price. It's instant, but it's not infinite. And what Jesus is able to do is not ring the bell because he knows if he does it God's way, if he follows his Father who is good and true and loving, then the reward on the other end will pale in comparison to anything the enemy might be offering us. Our problem with temptation, our problem with sin, is not that we desire too much. It's that we settle for too little. We don't understand, we don't see the magnitude of what God is offering to us. And so we settle for what the world is offering to us. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if I can find it. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If we want to experience growth in the Christian life, if we want our souls to grow and expand in power, in love, goodness, forgiveness, kindness, patience, self-control, we need to learn to delay gratification and have our eyes opened to the magnitude of what's truly being offered to us. So how does that happen? Well, spiritual growth all happens the same way, and that's through suffering. It's a message most of us don't like to hear, but it's true. And suffering comes in two forms. There's suffering we do not choose, which we call a trial. And I'm sure if I were to poll everyone in this room to ask, when have you experienced the most spiritual growth in your life, you're probably going to identify a trial, some painful episode that you didn't want, you didn't choose, and yet God used it powerfully in your life. But the second way that we experience pain and suffering and grow is through suffering that we do choose. And the language for that is a discipline. Sometimes we call it a spiritual discipline. 
It's something that we welcome into our lives that is uncomfortable because we know that in doing so, we train ourselves to seek something better. We delay gratification to open our sights to something of more gratification. Let me just underline one form of spiritual discipline that I think was incredibly relevant and important in our culture today. It's the same one you see Jesus practicing in Luke chapter 4. Fasting. Now there's the traditional way, which is to fast from food, which is certainly good and relevant, especially in a gluttonous culture like our own. But I want to prescribe for you a different thought about fasting that might be a bit more relevant today. And that is what I call a media fast. Turning off our screens. A day, an afternoon, an evening, a week, I don't know, where you turn off your screens. Televisions, computers, tablets, phones. I think it's a good practice, a helpful practice, maybe a painful practice if you're a millennial, if you're under the age of 30, this would be like cutting off your arm. But here's why I think it's important. Two benefits. First off, by turning off our screens, we can begin to detoxify our souls. Remember that statistic that we're each exposed to what was it, 3,200 desire-inducing advertisements every day? Most of those advertisements come to us through media. When we turn off the media, we have an opportunity to just step back and rest for a minute and actually begin to realize how driven we are by the messages we receive through our devices all the time, telling us to want more, to desire more, to pursue more, comparing ourselves to some other idiot on Facebook who only puts up the very best parts of their life to compare to the very worst of ours. All that stuff is not good for our souls. And it makes us believe that the meaning of life is pursuing the things that the world tells us to pursue. By turning it off, we have an opportunity to begin to detoxify, to let those things out of our system, to flush them out, and to regain some perspective. The second benefit, though, is by turning off those devices, we create space in our life for communion with God. And one thing we forget about it in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that fasting from food in the ancient world was not just about feeling hungry and allowing that physical pain to prompt prayer. In the ancient world, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have ramen noodles. They didn't have carry-out. They spent an enormous amount of their time every day in food preparation. So when a household fasted, it was not just about feeling hungry. It freed up enormous amounts of time every day so that they could now pray. Focus on the Word of God. And we don't spend nearly that much time in food preparation. We spend most of it in entertainment on our devices. So if you turn them off, you now have space in your life. You now have time to commune with God. And in that posture, in that place, with your nose in Scripture, with your heart bent toward God and communion with Him, your eyes can be opened, illuminated to the magnitude of what He's truly offering you that makes the things of this world pale in comparison. Just last week, there was an article in The Atlantic about a research study that found people are more likely to entertain themselves with self-induced electric shocks than to stay alone with their own thoughts for 15 minutes. We are so uncomfortable with what's really inside of our souls that we would rather shock ourselves, literally, with electric impulses then actually have to sit quietly for 15 minutes and contemplate what's going on in our soul. 
And yet, that discomfort of knowing what's really going on inside of me is an absolute prerequisite for maturity in the Christian life. Three things I want you to think about today. First, how have you bought into the lie that your life is defined by what you desire? Your purpose, your drive, your mission, your ambition in life to pursue the things of this world. Have you bought into the idea that you live by bread alone? Secondly, how have you exchanged infinite gratification for instant gratification? How have you allowed the messages of this world to get you to settle for something less than you were created for? And finally, how would your life be different if you just turned off the world once in a while, shut off the screens, turned your heart toward God, and began to con- begin to contemplate the magnitude of what he's offering you. He's not merely offering you a good, comfortable, loving life. He is offering you the most powerful, most beautiful, most valuable thing in all creation. What he is offering you is himself. We are far too easily satisfied. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are feeble, we are weak, we are dust. We settle too easily for the temptations of the enemy and this world. I pray for myself and for my sisters and brothers here that you would meet us in our weakness. By your grace, you would open our eyes to what you are truly offering us. And in the vision and the glory of who you are, would we find the strength to resist temptation. And you would deliver us from evil and equip us to pursue you, throwing off the sin that so easily entangles us so that we might acquire that which is of infinite value. And Lord, in the process of seeking after you, may we be a light to others in this world, to this culture that is so lost in desire and instant gratification. May they see in us something different, something better, something truer that by the lifting up of your Son in the church, you would draw all people to yourself. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.